This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Eric Kaufman. Eric guides leaders to make better decisions and achieve better results. He's consulted for hundreds of leaders, including executives and teams at Sony, T-Mobile, Genentech, Alcon Labs, and Teradata. He's the founder and president of Sagatica Inc. and serves on the board of the San Diego Zen Center. With Sounds True, he's the author of the book and the audiobook, The Four Virtues of a Leader, Navigating the Hero's Journey Through Risk to Results. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Eric and I spoke about the hero's journey of leadership as a spiraling movement in his own life, beginning with leaving the familiar and going after a great prize, then encountering challenges and risks that demand personal sacrifices, and then finally sharing the hard-earned prize with one's community. We talked about the impact of his Zen practice on his work with leaders, and the year that he spent in solitary retreat, what he discovered, and how he emerged as a different person. And finally, we talked about the four virtues he discusses in his new book, The Four Virtues of a Leader. Focus, courage, grit, and faith, and how we must develop each one of these virtues in order to be effective. Here's my conversation on the four virtues of a leader with Eric Kaufman. To begin, Eric, I would love it if you would tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to be leading a consulting company that works with Fortune 1000 executives and other leaders. Uh, thanks, Tammy. I, I, my background is, uh, is eclectic, to be sure. I was actually, I grew up in Israel and, um, and moved from Israel to South Africa. And uh, from South Africa, I came to the United States and um, came here to finish my, my college uh, and, and university work. And um, I uh, enrolled in university and, and uh, in pretty short order, I got kicked out of college because I was learning all kinds of stuff, but none of them were academic values. And so I realized that I had to, I had to sort of figure out my life. And, and, um, and so I got involved at a young age, I was 20 or so, I got involved in, uh, in meditation and um, meditation practices. And uh, I continued doing that through college. And so then I, have, I did get, you know, I did get back into college. I finished my degree um, in, in business. I studied psych in, at the master's level, then went to work at Fortune 100. I went to work at 3M, then I worked at Corning. Um, but I realized that my love and passion was for um, not just driving results for the business, but developing people cultivating the capacity for people to connect their head and heart and make, you know, meaningful, satisfying outcomes. And so um, at a certain point, I realized I, I didn't, I didn't want to just do that as part of my job. I wanted that to be my full-time job. And so in 19, what, 99, I started my firm and I've been consulting and coaching ever since. Tell me a little bit about how your background with Zen meditation has informed your approach to working with leaders. Yeah, so um, it's it's very central to the way I show up and engage and how I work with clients. It's, it's not necessarily, you know, I'm not out there to, to create converts for any kind of Zen practice, right? But But how it informs it is, you know, first of all, informs it in being grounded in the sort of the, the twin wings of wisdom and compassion, right? So I'm working with clients 
and in my own practice as a human being, um, really it's working around how do I help these individuals and teams, because there's no such thing as an organization learning, right? There's only people. Um, so it's working with people to help them get clear. That's the wisdom part, right? Clear thinking, better decisions, um, better, better and broader perspectives, but also more connected at the heart level. That's the compassion side. Compassion for self, which is remarkably lacking in the corporate space and compassion for others. Um, and then, you know, and then there's a whole host of other things that are informed by the practices, right? There's a lot of embodied practices, you know, how do you actually, how do you actually reside in your body rather than get lost in fantasy? There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, aspects of how to bring centeredness and calmness into spaces that are constantly changing and uncertain and how to deal with anxiety so that they can make good decisions. So those are, those are some of the examples of, of how the practice is playing. And, and I have, a, you know, on a regular basis, clients, executives who get turned on to the ideas and want to start their own meditation practices, which is, which is, which is great for the company because there is a ripple effect when you have an executive getting more connected to their heart, their head, and their center. Now, your new book is called The Four Virtues of a Leader, and you start the book off with this curious opening, Eric, that I want to talk to you about. You start the book off by writing, I have no intention of adding to the mythology of leaders as special creatures. And that's very curious to me in a leadership book. So is your view that everyone's a leader, but we're just leaders in different kinds of ways? Or are, in fact, organizational leaders, political leaders, are they special creatures in some kind? Um, yeah, I wrote that because I, I, I deeply believe that there is a, there's a mythology and it's a very, um, sort of Americanized implicit sense of hierarchy in the culture of, of leaders as having some kind of special, you know, um, special dispensation. Um, I, I think that, you know, at the, at the most essential level, leadership is, is an attitude. It's the way that we engage in the world. It's a way of taking responsibility. It's a way of, of um, orienting towards uh, empowerment and the capacity to make things happen. And it's a way of orienting towards care and nurturing of other beings. And so the, I write, you know, the mythology of leader is some kind of special creature, I think, is limiting because it, 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 it limits those who want to be leaders because they think they have to be something that they aren't. And it limits the people who are being led because they're expecting something they can never get, which is something, nothing more than just another human being trying to do the right thing in difficult circumstances. So, yeah, it, it, is, it is a pervasive and I think unfortunate mythology that serves nobody. Well, well, let's go into it a little bit more. Is everybody a leader, but in a different way? Would you say yes or no? Some people aren't. They don't take risks. They don't step out. Nobody's following them. They're not, and everybody's not a leader. I think that, you know, if we contextualize leader, you know, if a leader inherently requires somebody following them, right? Because if you're walking down the street and nobody's following you, you're not a leader. You're just out for a stroll, right? So there's got to be some dynamic relationship between the leader and the lead. So if if you either don't want to, or people don't, if you don't want to have people follow you, or if people don't want to follow you, then there's not a leadership um, role that's being played out, right? But I mean, my wife is a leader in the household. My daughters are leaders in their class because in in in, in those contexts, there are people who are being influenced by them. So I think everyone has the capacity. That's why I said it's no special. There's no special dispensation. Everyone has the capacity. But I think to your point, there has to be some dynamic exchange of energy and of effort and of, and of willingness. And so can everyone be a leader? I totally believe that. Is everyone a leader? No, absolutely not. Some people are happy to just comply or disengage or, or just contribute. They don't necessarily want to lead. Now, in your book, The Four Virtues of a Leader, you use the narrative template of the hero's journey to talk about leadership. And I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that and how this idea of the hero's journey relates to leadership. Um, yeah, yeah, the hero's journey is, is, is near and dear to my heart. I think it's, you know, there, there are three, I think of it as sort of there are three components that make up 
a hero's journey, and there's a lot of writing about it, but I'm interested in these three element, the three elemental features of a hero's journey. One, that it's a departure, right? There's, there's some, you're leaving the comfort zone, you're leaving the familiar, you're leaving the known world, particularly in order to um, discover or attain something significant. And, and you know, it doesn't have to be save the world or save the damsel or beat the dragon, but there's some, you know, element number one is I'm leaving my known world and I'm off to discover or attain something significant. That's one. Second component of the hero's journey is that as I go through, you know, there's risk, there's sacrifice, there's danger, um, you know, there's challenge. So what I'm seeking to either discover or attain is, is not easy to get. Um, it's physically challenging, it's emotionally challenging, it's relationally challenging. And the third component of the hero's journey is that it's, there's, a, there's a return back to the village, right? There's a return back to the known world. But now I've been changed by the journey. I've attained something or I've discovered something. And then I, I turn around and share that. So there's, there's departure, there's pursuit of something significant, there's risk, challenge, and danger, and there's contribution. And I think that does two things. It describes a lot of my life, probably your life, the life of anyone I know who is striving for consciousness, which might be the greatest prize of all, but it's also what leaders have to do, right? They have to engage change and leave the known world. They have to make sacrifices, and they have to ultimately make sure that the gain is greater than just their own. Otherwise, you know, they will, they will lose credibility and, and followership. So I, I really see it as it's, it's a journey of leadership. It's also a journey of life, right? It's life as a hero's journey, but certainly leadership. When I think of this arc of the hero's journey as applied to leadership, what occurs to me is that we've seen in our culture over the last decade or so, people who have risen to positions of leadership who maybe they departed from the known, maybe they encountered challenges and made sacrifices and made their way through. But there's a sense that when they accomplished their task, it was for personal gain. It was for self-serving interests, not this return to the village, as you described, with sharing the results with everyone. What do you think of that? Somehow people have risen to the top of corporations who seem pretty self-serving. Well, I mean, corporations, churches, nations, communities. I mean, it's not just limited to corporations. I think it's in every, every mm -hmm. dimension of human experience, right? I mean, are we, are we lacking in examples of spiritual leaders who've really become incredibly self-focused? You know, self -focused? Um, I'm with you. Yeah. You know, Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth Hamilton, who's the, one of the teachers at the San Diego Zen Center, um, wrote a book called Taming a Parrot, which is a, a, a lovely book on, on Zen practice, applied Zen practice. And one of the things she talks about a lot is um, she talks about the many me's, the many me's, like, you know, many different aspects of self. And, and you know, the idea, I'm not trying to promote some kind of idea of a, of a flawless, virtuous, um, um, human being that doesn't care about for themselves, because I don't know what that's like, right? I think that, you know, self, being self-serving at some level is one of the means, right? I, I also want to gain. I want to, I mean, there's certain things I want, right? I mean, fundamentally, I want to gain something and I want to avoid something, right? I mean, it's craving and aversion of the two basic drivers. Um, and so, so I'm not denying that some level of personal gain is is, is it inappropriate? Because I think it is appropriate. I mean, it's motivating, it's exciting, it's interesting. It's, uh, there, there are many reasons why somebody would want to gain something for themselves. I think the leaders have just become, it's all about me. I and mean, we're sort of, you know, in, in the worst possible, cartoonish possible way that we can see in, in, on, on a national stage, that kind of profound self-absorption is being demonstrated. And I think that is a cartoon existence of reality. Right, I'm not the one who necessarily coined that term this week, but but um, we're more dimensional than that. And people who are all about themselves eventually only are able to maintain around them people who are all about themselves too. So I, I, I hope that makes sense. Let me maybe expand for a second. A leader who is really just about personal gain will ultimately 
surround themselves with people who can eat from the same dish. So they're going to be in it just for their personal gain too, which is to say loyalty is not going to be there. Genuine um, sort of care is not going to be there. The capacity to um, withstand great challenges and remain intact as human beings is not going to be there. What's going to be there is a tribe of people who are self-centered and who will check out just as soon as they don't get what they want. So it's expensive to be that kind of leader. It's, it's, it's visible, it's common, but it's super expensive. Expensive meaning it takes real tons of energy and continuous seduction to hold that role, and it robs that leader's capacity from a full life. So they become slaves to their own success, as it were. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I'm curious to know more about the hero's journey in your own life. You told me a little bit about how you came to be doing the work you're doing as a coach and consultant and leading a consulting company. But if you were to describe your life for a moment here in terms of that arc of the hero's journey, what's that like for you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the hero's journey is um, is an arc only when you look at it up close, and it's a spiral. I think when you step back. Um. And I think that there are phases and stages, right? So when my family left Israel, I, you know, my life was over as far as I could tell back then, right? Because I had a whole future and a vision of who I was going to be and, um, and, uh, and abandoning that left me sort of without meaning or purpose. And I think, you know, living in South Africa, was was an expression of that. And coming to the States was, was my effort to leave the known world, right? I came to America, literally, literally, I'm like, you know, millions of immigrants, right? I came to America to make a better life. I came here alone. I didn't know anyone. My family wasn't here. Um, but I literally was drawn to America to come to a place where I could make a life for myself. What life did I want to make? I didn't really know. But that, that was certainly, that was the prize, right? And I think you know, getting lost in the early days of, of my college was 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 one of the great sort of, you know, every hero's journey has temptations and foes and, you know, allies and, and enemies and uh, um, discovering, you know, finding my spiritual teachers, getting involved in my spiritual community. I, I ended up moving into a spiritual commune um, where I then lived from when I was 20 till I was 31. Sort of the long journey of, of spiritual training, along with you know finishing college, going to work. Um, I might have shared with you right one, one of the other elements. Then, then another set of departure was realizing I, I no longer wanted to be in this kind of bifurcated life of, of corporate life and spiritual life. I just wanted to be wholly committed to my spiritual practices. So, um, so I left the corporate. I quit my job. I shaved my hair. I gave away my possessions, and I. I went up to New Mexico. I built a cabin in the mountains, which we actually just visited two weekends ago. I brought my kids there for the first time. It was kind of fun. They were disappointed that there's no Wi-Fi out there, but uh, mm-hmm. because yeah, because they're teenagers and that's what they're focused on. Um, but you know that was that was part of the hero's journey again, sort of leaving the known world, right? I, I said I'm, I'm done with the world, and so I, I went up in the mountain and uh, ended up spending a year in a retreat up there in this cabin that I built, and. And again, what ended that year was this revelation that I was, in fact, going the wrong way, that spirituality and human evolution, for me, required family and service to community, not seclusion and isolation. And so, you know, while, again, that was kind of another departure, so the journey started again, right? So now it's 1998, and it says, okay, different direction. The prize now is really the prize that I was going after, because my, my spiritual practices at the time were really about clarity and focus and wisdom and, and, and mental, you know, uh, um, strength, as it were, and spending all that time in seclusion. I, I describe it sometimes as, you know, I be, my mind became so focused that my heart opened up and flowed through my mind. And I suddenly had this revelation that, you know, wow, compassion and love and selflessness and tender nurturing of other people is, is, is a spiritual path through, not just sort of the, the samurai's version of, you know, the blade's edge. And so, and so that, 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 that journey, that arc then became about, okay, I'm going to remake myself now, right? I'm wife and children and 
mortgage and business and all those wonderful things. And so the journey continues. But there, you know, I, I, I see it as, a, as not, not as an arc, but as a, as a spiral that has, can be seen as a series of arcs, right? And, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That makes good sense. Yeah. Yeah. And the journey continues. The journey is not even close to being done, right? It continues. I just want to underscore one thing. You spent a year by yourself in a cabin that you built in your early 30s. I think for most people, they'd be like, what? What did he do all day? What do you mean he was by himself? Where did he get his food? Why was he doing that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was, it was, uh, it was pretty intense. It was, uh, it took me three months to build it because I, I wasn't, I was, you know, I was an office worker, not a construction guy. And, uh, but I figured out how to build it and I built it. And then, I, you know, like I said, we just went back a couple weekends ago, 20 years later, it's still solid. So I'm proud of that structure. Um, I had, you know, it was on, on the property of one of the, of, of one of the satellites of our spiritual community. And so there were people there who would, um, you know, bring food once a week to a, you know, designated spot that we put on, you know, in, in, the, in the forest. And, um, you know, they, they would also make sure that I was picking up the food. And if I wasn't, they'd be coming to check on me. Um, you know, it was, I had a, it was self-sustaining in terms of electricity and I had catch water, a 500 gallon tank and I had composting toilet I'd built in there. So there was no black water. It was very, it was very off the grid. And what I did was I just, I practiced, you know, deepening techniques, right? I, I had you know, TV or radio or telephone. Uh, I meditated on average eight, sometimes nine, 10, 11 hours a day. I exercised, I ate and slept. That was pretty much it. Um, about three months into it, I was, I have journal entries that are so profoundly disturbing. Um, about three months into it, I was, I was on the verge of suicide. You know, I thought I would go into it and be like, oh, you know, angels singing, lights flashing, all these wonderful cool things. But uh, I didn't really expect to go into it and have, you know, after 10 or 11 years of really intensive practice, I thought I was like, yeah, I'm all, I'm all clean. Not so much. Um, so there was some really super dark, super challenging, incredibly suicidal times that I think were perhaps the most powerful aspect of that whole journey was because I was trained in sitting and to sit when all I want to do is kill myself was really, really, I don't even know what to say. Interesting? No, healing. Healing. I'll tell you one thing, Tammy. It's kind of surprising to me. So I left the cabin in 1997, 98. So we're going on 20 years now. You know what didn't come out of the cabin with me was um, self-criticism. Hmm. It stopped. Hmm. I still get bombed. I'm disappointed. I, I get frustrated. I, 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 you know, I think I'm, you know, I doubt myself. But I do not have the inner voice that critiques me anymore. Not for 20 years. Okay, let's break this down a little bit, Eric, because I think this is you're saying a lot here, and I want to make sure I really understand it. So first of all, here you are in this cabin, and you're surprised that you feel like killing yourself. What was happening that you felt like killing yourself? What was going on inside your mind? How did you come to this place of despair? You know, I sat there, and um, and what started happening was that there was no, there was you know. A, whatever sort of inner chatter that I had. So think, you know, one way to think of it, one way I thought about it is, you know, as I, as I meditated for 10 or 11 years leading up to it, and I, medit- I lived in a spiritual community. We meditated every day. We did, you know, regular sessions, retreats, I mean, the whole thing, right? So it's not like I was a novice. Um, but, but all of life goes on, right? Relationships, work, school, the typical anxieties of, of day-to-day stuff. And, uh, what occurred to me later is that as I sat there without any kind of mitigating forces, any of the small sort of self-critical, self-loathing voices, any of the sort of, you know, cut off, you know, parts of the soul that have been shoved into the corners of consciousness, they, they sort of, they came into the foreground rather than just being so far in the background as to be invisible or inaudible. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like that? Yeah. And when they came to the foreground, they came to the foreground without any mitigating force. There was nothing to screen it. So in short order, all this, all the material that I would successfully hidden for in my meditation practices for a decade, it was almost like, you know, the, the soot 
on the on the chimney that you know you've cleaned it well, but you don't know there's still a layer of tar and soot just clinging to the chimney. In that sort of cleansing process of long sitting without any distraction, that soot started breaking off. That sort of you know tar of consciousness, the the the, the darkest aspect of my unwelcomed, unhealed, undesirable self. Which is just what it means to be human. It's not like I have a specially bad childhood or a particularly messed up, you know, soul. It's just humanity living as a human being is is suffering, as some would say, right? That's the first noble truth. Life is suffering, it's unsatisfactory. It all just came and occupied the foreground. And I sat in a tarry, dark, clingy sense of hate for that self. Hate. I hated myself. Um, that's all I could be in touch with. And it came to the point, Tammy, where, where this, was the, this was the most terrifying part of it. You know, sitting in that hate was one thing, but when that hate, when, when the choir of self-negating voices switched on me and started being rational, and the rational context was this, the best gift I could give the family, the best thing I could do for humanity, it's to remove myself from the planet. That surprised the hell out of me. And yet you emerged nine months or so later, and this voice of self-criticism was gone. It hasn't appeared in the same kind of way with that same kind of you-need-to-kill-yourself message. So what happened? How did that change? I don't... You know, what I just, you know, I was trained in sitting. I was, you know, my, my meditation training says, be present to the experience and let it arise and pass. And I clung with great faith to, uh, to the practice of arising and passing, arising and passing. And, and sure enough, it arose slowly and painfully and passed slowly and painfully. And the, the compelling nature of that limiting and outdated belief uh, began to crumble just under the sheer dispassionate observation of its emptiness. And so I don't know that I won't ever have like really terribly self-critical thoughts because I don't know what will happen in the future. Sure, sure. But I know that, I know that that, that intensity or any of that, I simply, my, in, in my, my ego structure, it does not scream at me, you idiot, you fool, what were you thinking? You know, those voices that are so common that, I'm so, that I spent 30 some odd years with, it just doesn't come up. Part of what I'm imagining, Eric, is someone who's listening who says, look, I'm not going to take a year off and go live in a cabin. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> not going to do it. And yet... Pretty much what everyone says. <laughs> yeah. And yet, the other thing that many people, I think, might say listening to this conversation is I would love for the voice of self-criticism to go away in my life. How can Eric help me with that? How do you help leaders with that? Uh, so there, 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 I mean, this, this is what spiritual practices are all about, right? This is, this is, I mean, it's not like I'm inventing something that hasn't been already established for thousands of years. I mean, what it takes is it takes, <laughs> you know, I'm going to get a little circular here, but I think the book that I wrote and, and, and what I'm focused on is, is to provide that very concept. What does it take? It takes a certain amount of, a great amount of self-awareness, right? So there has to be this sense of focus on the, you know, inner domain, self-awareness. Uh, with self-awareness comes things like, the observer self, right? learning to turn on sort of an objective aspect of self. I mean, one of the great challenges and one of the great ways that we continue to hold ourselves as smaller than who we are is by buying into this kind of very subjective relationship with ourselves. And so having some distance and objectivity, which is one of the fundamental lessons of, of mindfulness and meditation in general, right? That's one. I think there's an element of huge element of courage, a willingness to, I think the people who want to be healed but aren't willing to be courageous to step into the pain and the discomfort and the, um, and the frustration of it, I just, I don't know how you do this without courage. The, the third virtue I talk about is great, it just takes time, it takes perseverance and consistency. 
and then there's an element of faith. There's a surrender, right? At some point, we've got to be willing to open our hand and let slip what we cling on to with great, with great passion. And often we cling on to our identity with a kind of, with a kind of strength that, that, is, uh, that holds us back. So in a way, I, I mean, I'm, I'm writing in my book you know, what, 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 what served me and, and what I learned and how can I teach it further. Mm-hmm. Your book, The Four Virtues of a Leader, goes into these virtues you just described, and we're going to talk more about each one. But tell me why you decided to call them virtues. I mean, that's a word I think that a lot of people associate with some kind of dusty religious text, virtues. Um, I, I think, I think, I think that the dusty old religious texts have a point. Uh, you know, there's, there's all this conversation about distinguishing religion from spirituality. Um, and, and I'm, I'm totally down for that. I also think that there's a danger of sort of what's the expression, throwing out the baby with the bathwater, right? There, I mean, the, the religions have, were established as a way I mean, religion, the word religion in English is from a Latin word, but we legate, it means to reconnect, to reunite. Same word as yoga, meaning union, right? The yoke, the connection. And I think that there is something that I'm, that I'm going after that has that sort of ancient spirituality to it, the, the deep wisdom of the religious traditions. It is virtues. I mean, these are, these are things that are inherent in people and can be cultivated. They're not competencies, right? That's a very corporate word. What are the competencies? Those are skills that can be developed. But this is more than skill. These are ways of being. These are ways of committing to a... a, a these are ways of living. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't really have an issue with it sort of being thought of as dusty old religious texts because I'm inviting people to return to that. You know, the alternative is not looking entirely great, right? The kind of, you know, self-aggrandizing... Um, small minds that some of our some of our sort of commercial lives are, are promoting, those are not the paths to people's sense of satisfaction, contentment, love, connection. So yeah, the virtues are inherent qualities that people can cultivate but require effort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. So in the book, The Four Virtues of a Leader, you begin by talking about the virtue of focus. And as you were describing it here in this conversation, you were talking about self-awareness and being able to take an observer perspective on ourselves. And you, you have people focus on this question, what am I creating? So help us understand this emphasis on the virtue of focus. Yeah, I, I think you, you, you sort of pulled out the essential question there, right? What am I creating? So um, you, you would ask me, you know, about the cabin and, and leadership and all those things. And I think in all those various arcs of my journey, and as I work with people and have been working with people for you know, 17 years in, in, a, in a coaching and consulting capacity, the sense of personal responsibility is really huge, right? Because it's the birthplace of discipline, of good choices, of sense of empowerment. And so what am I creating is essentially that question. Are you tuned into the fact that what you're focusing on with your beliefs, with your values, and with your expectations, that, that, that those things that you focus on, the, the, you know, if I believe that the world is inherently dangerous, then I have an expectation that people are, you know, the people are threatening and menacing. And I will orient myself in such a way as to be protective and safe and relate to people in such a way that makes them feel threatened and I'm perpetuating the cycle, right? So my beliefs, they feed my expectations. My expectations ultimately dictate my behavior. My behavior 
drive the results in the world, which which often reinforces my beliefs. So that that cycle is familiar, right? I don't think I'm breaking new ground here. Um, but but there are a lot of people who don't grasp that, and so they're not clued into this essential experience that we are active participants in the shaping force of the reality that we're experiencing. And that to me is what focus is all about. What am I creating? And so inherently there's a sense of personal responsibility in that. And it requires self-awareness. It requires a a level of objectivity about the self. It requires um, uh, an honesty about who I am, what I believe and, and, and how I am a quantum force in my environment actually shaping it. Now, the second virtue that you talk about in Four Virtues of a Leader, you've already mentioned, which is courage. And in the book, you direct readers to ask this question, what am I avoiding? That seems like a very powerful question. Talk some about that. Yeah, so uh, I define, I I have a very simple definition for courage. I define it as walking towards what you'd rather run away from. And so, you know, the things that I avoid in my life are never the fun, exciting, you know, energizing things. The things that I avoid in life are, you know, they're, they're somehow dread, dreaded things, right? So difficult conversations, uh, uncertainty in projects, uh, new plans, um, new relationships, or, or changing in old relationships, right? These are the things that we avoid. And, uh, and I'm, not, I'm not talking about like spiders or jumping out of airplanes or bungee jumping, right? That's, that's, that's thrilling. That's not the same thing. I'm talking about the day-to-day, you know, defensive mechanisms that we have that protect our sense of identity. And... Um, and I think in the absence of courage, uh, life is an incredibly muted experience. And and from a leadership perspective, I don't even see how we can have a conversation about affecting any kind of influence or change or, or, or results without taking some risks, right? And therefore, we come back to courage. So it's not about being fearless, Tammy. I mean, I hear people talking about, well, you can be fearless. You go to this seminar and you'll be fearless. And if you do this, you'll be fearless. I think that's just inconsistent with the human experience. Fear is biological. It's wired into our... Look, if my great ancestors from thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago had no fear, I wouldn't exist. <laughs> I am I am the, 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 the genetic offspring of beings that understood fear and became, were able to stay safe and perpetuate. Mm-hmm. So it's not about being fearless. But it's about, it's about challenging the boundary of what we think is safe. And often that boundary is really just a, an ego protection. I'd be curious to know, Eric, in your own life, if there's a way that you were courageous, where you walked towards something you would rather have run away from, you know, in the last few years. Oh, this really required courage. Um, yeah, I mean, it happens daily, right? Uh, well, it's not daily, certainly weekly. I can think of... Um, I can think of in the last few years publishing a book. Yep. This would be germane for this conversation, right? I had all kinds of reasons. I mean, for 10 years I worked on a book and didn't publish it. And if you'd ask me why I didn't publish it, and, uh, you know, it's because, well, I came up with all these really cool reasons not to publish it. One was really noble. Like, if I publish a book, Tammy, I swear to God, I said this to my friends, if I publish the book and three or four years from now I disagree with what I wrote, because inevitably, you know, as sure. I grow and, and mature, I'll have a different opinion. I disagree. Then, um, you know, I'm now in print, and people will think this is what I believe, and I don't want to be perceived as limited in that way. It sounds noble, right? It sounds like I'm really committed to this, like, sense of honesty and integrity. Yeah, baloney. You know, what was really going on was that I was afraid that if I publish it, it's going to tank. People will think I'm an idiot, and I'm going to be publicly humiliated. Really, that was going on, and it, it 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 was partly an act of courage to get to the point and the commitment of of putting the book out in the public domain. Um, that's that's one recent example. I think it's a good example, and here we are having this conversation right as your book, The Four Virtues of a Leader, is being published. Does it take courage to 
work with, you know, there'll be criticism, somebody's not going to like the book, and write a negative review. And, and how do you work with that, Eric? It's a lot of breathing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it, I mean, that, that's my whole point, right? Because, you know, I, I, it's very easy for me to, I mean, I have a very well-developed capacity for being a mystic, a recluse, right? And that's not my life at the moment. My life right now is very extroverted, very public. Um, and uh, and even sort of the pursuit of, of, of the mystic recluse is both uh, an aspirational pursuit, but also an ego pursuit, right? In, in that in that realm, I can avoid criticism and any kind of uh, questions about my competence or my intelligence. Um, so you know how I work with this, like how I work with everything. You know, I breathe, I I, I observe, I label it, I note it, and um, I I embrace what's going on with all the discomfort of it, as long as it takes. It might take a minute, it might take a week. You know, I imagine someone listening who says, you know, there's this thing that I know I'm avoiding, and I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm going to tell you the truth here, listening to this conversation. I'm just afraid to do it. And Eric sounds like, you know, he's done all this meditation practice. Good on him. You know, I'm not, I don't know exactly how to work with this discomfort that I feel, and yet I also would like to be more courageous. How would you address that person? You know, it, 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 I mean, actually, I had this conversation on a call before before, before our call. I was talking with a, a client of mine who's a senior vice president in a Fortune 1000 company, and he's just gotten this new promotion, and, and, and he's been working out of fear in this new role. And... Um, and he's, he's uh, you know, over the past three or four months, he's, he's in fact demonstrated a lot more courage without going away to a year in the woods or meditating for 30 years, right? And uh, it comes down to what I think of as three, these three steps, right? And the first thing that he learned to do, even without years of meditation, is to shift his attention from a really just cognitive perspective to an embodied perspective. So anyone can learn how to begin to discern the sensations of fear in their body. Um, upset stomach, butterflies in the, you know, butterflies in the gut, the tightness in the soles, like the pressure in the chest, the sweaty palms, whatever it is, right? And when he learned how to make it physical, make it embodied, he's already beginning to practice courage, right? Because I described courage as walking towards what you'd rather run away from. Mm-hmm. And by... By embodying the experience, you're already, you're not running, you're being present. So that's step one. Step two is then to, um, to, to face it and actually name what it is. In his case, it was fear of failure. And when you look more deeply, it was really fear of rejection, right? If he's, if he's going to fail, people are going to think less of him and they're not going to want to be around him. So when you name it, um, there's tremendous research on the power of labeling, right? The, the, the power of naming. So first is, you know, you feel in your body and you make it more present. And you're, that's already a practice of courage. And second is you name it. And then the third part is to embrace it. You know, what are sort of rational, reasonable things that you could do to move 10%, 15%, 20% closer to your destination rather than just being frozen or backing up? So it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, again, this is not about eliminating or destroying or removing or transforming. It's about an iterative approach starts with the body, and then it goes to the labeling in the mind, and then it goes to action. Very good. The third virtue that you talk about in Four Virtues of a Leader is grit. And, you know, this is a word that we're hearing a lot about with the publication of Angela Duckworth's book on grit. Tell me what you mean by grit and why it's one of the four virtues you've identified. Um. I don't, I don't know how much experience you have with the I Ching. You, I'm sure you're familiar with it, right? The, yeah. The, the Chinese book change, the divination. I remember I started, um, I was using the I Ching sort of in the mid-80s. I started, my, one of my teachers was really big into the I Ching, so we were doing a lot of I Ching um, readings as a way to um, sort of cultivate our intuition and, and, and just you know, grow in wisdom. And one of the one of the prevailing lines in the I Ching, at least at least the Wilhelm uh, translation, which was the one we were using, was, you know, whatever, you know, it would be like, you know, 
earth over water, blah, 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 blah. At the end, it was the perseverance furthers. It was almost like the solution yeah. to everything in the East. Perseverance furthers. And, um, and I really sort of got interested in that and recognized that, you know, anything that was meaningful that I accomplished and, and my friends around me, whether that was a, a relationship that was working or, or physical health or spiritual practices or financial discipline or career transformation or career, um, uh, um, career growth or, um, you know, a skill, juggling, bicycle riding, whatever, right? Any, anything that we accomplished was meaningful. It took longer than we ever expected, required more energy, and involved way more mistakes and, and failures than we thought it would. Right? That's life. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the hero's journey, yes, there's, you know, sort of focus, what are you, who are you, and where are you going, what are you becoming? That, that's one element. There's courage, which says, okay, we need to walk to the edge and not back away from it. And then at the end of the day, there's just kind of the blue-collar work that's required to make anything work. Um, that That is like, because there's people I know who are incredibly aware, who are wonderfully courageous, and just lack the capacity to stick with something over time to transform matter and energy into something different. That matter and energy can be myself, or it can be the environment around me. Um, and to me, it's it's really just a discussion about self-discipline. Aditan, right? One of the one of the Buddha's sort of uh, ten virtues. Aditan, strong determination. Um, the meditation practices that I was trained to do doesn't really matter if I feel like it. it. Doesn't matter if I'm moved. It doesn't matter if the spirit wants it. It just matters that you show up, sit down on a cushion, and do the best you can in this twenty, thirty minutes, hour, whatever it is. And so, there's something really blue-collar about about our personal evolution, about spiritual, business, relational accomplishments. And I think, I think it's terribly downplayed in our current culture. You have a quote from the book. You, know, you say, grit more than any other factor reliably predicts achievement. It's a very strong statement. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's one that's based in tremendous research, not just my own, but you know, great scholars who are researching you know, what other things that help people be, achieve significant, significant meaning, meaningful outcomes for themselves. And, and if, 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 you, if, you, if you don't need the research, you know, if you reflect on your life, grit is the blue-collar component of accomplishment. It's just you got to stick with it. And it's not just when you feel like, here's the thing. We've sort of, again, hypnotized ourselves into this notion that we have to be turned on, excited, passionate all the time. Um, it's just not my experience. I mean, there's times when passion burns out. I've been married for almost 18 years. Not every day of our marriage has been like, oh, my God, I love you. You're the best. You know, there, I'll tell you, there's many days I'm like, oh, I wish I was back in a cabin for a little while. I didn't break, right? But, but the marriage, the love is nurtured by the daily practices, whether I feel like it or don't. You know, the, the business I've developed is nurtured by the ongoing practice. The spiritual practices are just that, they're practices. And I think that, I don't know how else to say it, but sort of the blue, co- the blue collar component of, 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 of the journey. You just gotta show up when you're disheartened, when you're burned out, when you're disappointed, when you don't feel like it, you just show up. Isn't it? Was it uh, Woody Allen that said, you know, 90% of success is showing up? I think that's who said it. Yeah. You know, interesting, in the section of the book on grit, you talk some about sacrifice and how leaders are called to sacrifice. And I noticed this is a word kind of like virtue that you don't hear that often talked about in a positive light. Tell me what you mean by sacrifice, and, and I'd like to know how you relate to the idea of sacrifice. So we just came back from uh, my family, my, my two daughters and my wife, we came back from uh, eight days in Cancun. It's a beautiful spot. One of the trips we took, we went to the car and drove out to um, Tulum. Tulum is one of, the, one of the ruins of the Mayan culture in the Yucatan Peninsula. And, um, and in the middle of Tulum, like literally in the middle of these ruins, there's a, what looks like an ancient basketball court. Uh, all made of stone with these stone hoops. And um, it turns out that this was, and you, you might know about this, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you do, but right, the, the Mayans had this game, was like sort of the, the ancient 
ancestor of basketball where these two teams would play and then one team would win and one team would lose, right? That's inevitably how the game goes. Do you know which of the team was sacrificed? Literally made a sacrifice to the gods? No. The winning team. The winners were the ones who were then sacrificed to the gods. And my, my daughters were like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It makes no sense. I would never want to play this game. I'm with your daughters. <laughs> right? Like, why would you want to play a game when you know that at the end you get your, you know, they slit your throat and pull out your heart and, and burn it in offerings to the gods? Um, because what they knew in their culture was that that winning the game was an opportunity for them to give themselves in the most complete way to the well-being of the whole community and that they were willing to exchange, sacrifice an exchange, right? An exchange of something really valuable for something even more valuable. And I'm not sure how much more valuable something can be than my very life. And that's not what we're asking for in sacrifice in our modern world. But the notion of sacrifice is not that you are losing something. The notion of sacrifice is a certain level of, of, um, of certainty that you are going to give something of value, of great value, in order to secure something of even greater value on the other side of it. And I think that is part of grit, right? We and what, what do we sacrifice? Hopefully none of us have to give up their lives for anything. But we sacrifice our comfort. It's a bigger sacrifice. We sacrifice energy. We sacrifice time. We sacrifice our own sense of, of you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm a father of two children, of two teenage girls. I constantly go through this process of knowing that I'm going to give up my own priorities because I have a higher priority of transmitting something to my children. So I may not spend the money in the way I want to spend it just at my own leisure. I may not go on a trip that I want to. I mean, this is the silliest example, Tammy, but. I don't like Chinese food. It's a good example. My kids like Chinese food. My kids love Chinese food. We go to Chinese food fairly regularly, and, and I do it because, you know what? They love it. So it's not like I'm going to die from eating Chinese food. I just happen to not like it. But they like it. And, and so why? You know what I mean? It's a tiny little sacrifice. I'm giving up something that's, that's important to me, my own sort of satisfaction in what I eat. But there's something greater that I'm getting on the other side, which is, you know, being of service to my children in that capacity. I hope that makes sense, because it doesn't have to be so huge. It does make sense, but at the same time, you know, the beginning of our conversation, we talked about how there are the many me's, and one of the me's is self-interested. So how do you balance self-interest and sacrifice? Well, I, I don't think it's balanced. I think, I, think the, I think this notion of sacrifice is exactly that. Sacrifice is when the self-interest is not fulfilled. It's not a balance. That's what sacrifice is. The sacrifice is um, giving up something of value. And, and, and what we value is our ego-driven sense of how things should be. Right? So I should be able to satisfy my own taste buds because, you know, darn it, I'm the one paying for it, blah, 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 blah. But I can just let that go, right? And, and, and sort of deal with the momentary discomfort of that, it's a tiny little sacrifice. But I, I don't think I don't think I don't think balance is the issue. I think if you're balancing it, you're not sacrificing. I mean sacrifice mm -hmm. by definition to some degree is not balance. Mm -hmm. It's a surrender. It's a giving up. Fair enough. Yeah, and, and and if you're not giving up something that's important to you, you're not sacrificing. Right? Because it it needs to be something that that somehow I'm attached to for me to feel the sacrifice of letting it go. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that if I sacrificed all the time, I could become a martyr, and that has its own negative baggage with it. And so I, I don't think you're talking about, you know, all-out martyrdom, so that's what I'm trying to get at. No, I, I'm glad you said that, because I, th I think martyrdom is just, it's just, another, it's just another form of defensive ego behavior. I mean, some people can be bullied, some people can be martyred, some people can be the likable ones, some people can be the perfectionists, right? I mean, <clears throat> the Enneagram alone has, you know, nine different ways you can manifest your personality, your personality patterns. 
and martyr is an extreme way. I'm not talking about martyrdom. I'm talking about deliberate, intentional, conscious, occasional practices. Mm -hmm. Okay, Eric, I want to talk about the fourth virtue that you cover in the four virtues of a leader, which is faith. And you have readers ask this question, what am I yielding? I thought that was so intriguing, the question that you associate with faith. Can you explain that? What am I yielding? Yeah, I think I think this, this, this discussion of sacrifices sort of walked into that territory. Um, I'm talking about letting go, not yielding as in you know the yield in the stock market, but yielding as in surrendering and letting go. And um, you know, faith to me is, is not again not necessarily the religion of faith. It's not Judaism or Christianity or, or, or Hinduism. But it's the leap of faith. It's the it's the ability to commit myself to something, even in the absence of proof or evidence. And to and in order for me to take the leap of faith, I have to step away from the known. I have to step away from the familiar. I have to step away from the secure, and uh, and yield something. Let something go. I have to open up my fist and let it slide out. Um, and that's surrender. You know that that's release. That's that's that I'm curious, Eric, if you could make this all very real for us in an illustration, which is, is there a leader that you've worked with that to some degree you would say embodies all four of these virtues? And you don't have to name the person, but if you could describe them to us, like how does it actually look? on the ground when this leader is in action? Someone that you know from your own personal experience? Sure. Um, I can call this leader... I can call this leader Brad, um, because that's his name. So it's very convenient. Um, and Brad really, I think, is a great example of somebody who ties these pieces together. So he... Uh, he he regularly practices these self-awareness components. So he is questioning from a focus perspective, right? He questions um, his motivation and his beliefs as he sets out on various projects and endeavors for the company. So he's practicing focus because he's really asking, you know, who am I and who's driving this and why am I why am I why am I asking people to do this? Why am I putting people's time, effort, and energy at play in this way? So there's a there's a there's an awareness component to the practices, and then Brad has really cultivated his courage, um, in particular because he became aware through the work that we did together that he had this very strong need to please people, which came from a, a need to please his father. So. Um, while he would be self-aware, he would also, you know, historically, he wasn't practicing courage. He was avoiding certain uh, uh, demands of people and requests of people because he wanted to please them. And so now he practices courage by recognizing that while he wants to please people, he wants them to, to like him, he has a bigger responsibility at play for livelihoods um, of many people. And so he is courageously being present to his discomfort. Um, and then he, he's also been really great about applying more regular discipline and structure to the way he operates. It doesn't take away from his spontaneity or creativity, but he's become very, um, very committed to the daily practices that are required to effectuate his leadership. And, uh, and his, 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 his faith or his surrender, I think, has just been most demonstrable um, by him willing to really change the way he develops his people. So he let go of, of an identity of him as the source of all knowledge who has to uh, control everything and really embraced um, a different identity of the leader as the facilitator, which, which was a real leap of faith for him. So that's an example of, of somebody who's practicing these four pieces in a practical way. I just have one final question for you, Eric, and this is a question that I think is up in our culture right now. 
for people who don't necessarily identify as a leader in a certain situation, whether it's the organization they work in, they work for a manager or a boss, or as citizens, how do we hold our leaders accountable? How do we do that? I'm not sure. That's a, that's a huge question. That's a huge question. Um, you know, I, 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 growing up in Israel, Israel is a much smaller country. So dynamics of the culture there are different. Right? There's 7 million people living in the whole country. And so there's a more intimate experience between the sort of broad population and the world leaders, because when there's only 7 million of you, like somebody knows somebody, you know, it's a very, it's, a, it's just a more intimate experience of, of, of society. I think in this broad society in the U.S. and then even globally, um, I, I think holding our leaders accountable is probably probably by the time we're looking at like presidential level elections, it's too late. I think that there are, you know, for somebody to have arrived at that role they're playing in, in the huge sort of global leadership role, they had to have come up through the ranks, right? Everybody comes up through the ranks. Nobody, in a democracy, nobody's born the king, right? They rise up. And how we hold people accountable, I think, along the way is by, is, is by sort of residing in our hearts and in our heads in a way that empowers and enables us. So I, I need to be empowered and enabled, and you need to be empowered and enabled. And on all of us, to expect, you know, the best human expression from myself and from others and to not turn a blind eye towards the person next to me who is being, um, who is bringing darkness into my environment or into the world. Because by the, and so it, it, it happens at an incremental level, you know, the teachers who, who, who connected with those students when they were young, the friends who were with those people, the other adults around them, you and I, I don't know that we can hold them accountable by the time they're running for president or running a, a global company. But I think that we can hold ourselves accountable to bringing forth the highest expression of humanity that we can as a being. And to hold that as a both model and container for the people around us so that when they're veering away into darkness, or into expressions of evil or ignorance or greed, we can be present to them in real time and help shift that. Because I think there comes a point where their trajectory is so well established that I don't know that we can hold them accountable. Mm -hmm. We can hold people accountable around us. We can hold ourselves accountable first and then use that as a moral compass to hold others and help others stay accountable along the way so that as young people become mature people, their trajectory was shaped by those forces that have helped them bring out the best in themselves. Thank you. It's a very honest and I think helpful answer. One final question, I'm going to sneak it in here, which is, do you think that you're coming out, if you will, as a leader in a new way with your book, The Four Virtues of a Leader? I mean, here you've worked with so many executives and company leaders as a coach and as a consultant, and of course you've run your own company, you know, relatively small consulting company. Is this a step out into leadership for you to be the author now of The Four Virtues of a Leader? It is. It is. I mean, you asked earlier about, you know, my own, my own sort of examples of, of my hero's the arc of the hero's journey, and I think this is a this is me stepping away from the familiar. I mean, I know how to do what I do. I know how to be in the roles that I am. And, um, and I, I, I feel called to both challenging my own notions and also providing, providing more leadership in the, in the greater community. And I think writing a book and publishing a book and doing all the things that come along with that is, is a bridge out of the sort of the normal, what was normal for me before into the, into the new experience. And, um, and uh, and it, it's not without some anxiety and uncertainty, but it's exciting to me. I'm 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 totally thrilled that you got to publishing it, Tommy. Um, I love the combination, the opportunity to to 
really speak to leadership because I'm very passionate about leadership and, and cultivating good leaders and, and effective leaders. Um, but my life is also a dedicated spiritual practice, and I think it sounds true. There's a, there's a wonderful tribe to uh, to bring those two together, and yes, it is a step up for me. And uh, and I'm adjusting and I'm learning, but I'm 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 totally up for it. Totally up for it. I've been speaking with Eric Kaufman. Thanks, Eric, for stepping out. Your book, The Four Virtues of a Leader, Navigating the Hero's Journey Through Risk to Results. It's a rigorous and challenging book, and I know when I read it, it inspired me to reach further in and out, inward into some deep truth-telling and outward into more leadership in the world. So thank you, Eric. I think it's going to have a strong impact. It's a strong book. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. I really appreciate the opportunity. really do. Soundstree.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for joining us.